Recently released Q3 numbers show that investment volumes are still dropping across all property types. But with inflation leveling out, CBRE recently predicted the Federal Reserve may begin cutting interest rates as soon as March of 24, which could drive investment activity recovery by mid-24. Go to junipersquare.com forward slash state of real estate, all one word, to learn more about these and other CRE market trends, including why the U.S. market still strongly appeals to international investors and the boom in private credit. Again, that's junipersquare.com forward slash state of real estate, all one word, to learn more. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director of Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. We're here on site today at the IMN CFO COO Conference in Dana Point, California. We're spending time with industry thought leaders who are sharing critical insights and perspectives about the macroeconomic environment, the impending recession, or perhaps lack thereof, and more broadly, how leaders are driving operational efficiency in their business. Today, we're interviewing CFOs, CEOs, and COOs to gain critical insights. I hope you enjoy this episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square and learn as much as I have. Natalie, thanks for joining me. Great to see you. So we're here at the IMN CFO CEO conference. It's May 2nd still of 2023. What are you hearing and seeing from your peers as you walk the floors? What are your big takeaways from the conference so far? My biggest takeaways is that we're not crazy and we're not the only ones experiencing what we're experiencing. It's interest rates, you know, fluctuations have created a lot of issues for people not knowing kind of how to predict when to jump back into the market. So a lot of people are kind of taking a pause. Everyone's an asset manager, <laughs> literally, whether or not you're an acquisitions person, a COO, whatever role you are today, you're an asset manager. Everyone's working through their portfolio expenses are just higher across the board. If it's insurance, if it's personnel, if it's digital marketing, whatever it might be, it's up. And I think, you know, five years ago when you interviewed a property manager, it was how lean can you run the budget? Today, it's how quickly can you staff this, right? So it's a little bit of a shift of what's available and what we're what we're able to get in the market is, has definitely changed. And I'd say it's also a big push on technology. And that's the piece of it that I'm most interested in learning in and a lot of AI and a lot of kind of chat GPT can run my investor relations reports for me to how do I synchronize different pieces of data, doing it digitally. And that's what has been kind of the most interesting insight for me. And when you, you're the first guest that I've had on today, who's talked about, you know, technology in the sense of AI and automation, what have you heard or what gets you excited about kind of the, the future of technology as it relates to the transformation of the investment management property asset management business? I, I think just the world of what it can do is we're just starting to scrape the surface and people have commented that, you know, real estate sort of the last to adopt when it comes to technology, which is a testament to you guys having as many clients as you do, because it takes us a long time. Like we're very old school. And the fact that, you know, AI can do everything from bank reconciliations for your accounting team on your property level reporting to helping draft your investor reports to synchronizing kind of all the information that you have in one database and just transfer it over to another database without you having to do anything. All of that is new to us. And we're sort of a mid-sized company, so we're not going to invest, you know, millions of dollars in this. We're going to sit back a little bit and kind of see what comes up. But I think 
the biggest place that a company like us will be able to use AI, hopefully, is on the property level. So on the leasing side, on the following up with leads, on the sort of, you know, we have a person named Colleen who's an AI person and she basically responds back to you immediately and people don't even know she's a real person. So Like a a chatbot on your website? But it's a chatbot, but it's like an AI chatbot. Got it. So they're actually not just like the typical chatbot is you have these 10 or 12 questions that they typically ask, and then she can answer those questions. And if it's anything outside that scope, then she's like, let me get you someone else to help you. This chatbot actually syncs in within our data and live kind of integrates within it. So it's it's been a, a change and it actually helps us follow up with leads because someone's out of the office sick, you don't have a lead follow up. Well, Colleen's always there. Right. So taking that kind of stuff on the property and figuring out how to use it at the corporate level, that's the takeaways I'm hoping to get kind of by the end of the conference. Yeah. Well, I think there's certainly a lot of innovation that can happen and we're hearing a little bit about it. It's, you know, it's May of 2023. So depending on when you're listening to this, things seem to be changing exponentially on a weekly basis. The one thing that I think we have less control over is our rates going to move up or rates going to move down. But there's lots of talk about interest rates here this week among CFOs and COOs. What are you, how are, how is the interest rate environment writ large impacting your business? And, you know, what, if anything, are you guys able to do or, you know, trying to change to adapt? So I think the first step when the rates started to kind of hike up was we just kind of took a look at our entire portfolio and we're mostly multifamily and student housing. The majority of our portfolio is fixed. So that makes us breathe a lot easier. You know, you can get through operational challenges if you're at a fixed interest rate and you kind of know what your exposure is. It's a lot harder on the deals. And we do have about three of them where our interest rates have doubled. The cost of a cap has, you know, 10x what it was before. And it's become very challenging to kind of service the debt in some instances. So we're strategically looking at refinancing, delevering, We've explored cash in refis. You know, we're we're kind of going across the board and saying, what's the best thing for the asset? What's the best thing for our investors? We're traditionally not a 70% levered group. So for the most part, we're feeling relatively comfortable. We've explored doing swaps with some of our our debt that currently is floating. So if we're holding an asset for a long term and we have three, four years on the loan, can we do a swap, fix that? Because the kind of SOFR curve it's steady, but it kind of goes down over the next three years. So you can actually get a swap right now at a more attractive rate than you could just staying staying floating. So we're looking at all these different options. I'm honestly talking to every person in the room trying to figure out what strategies they're doing. We just got through the whole FRB <laughs> like situation. You know, we we bank with them right now. Just the comfort that they're staying kind of with JP Morgan and they're they're, they're staying as, as sort of a, a viable business has given us a little bit more breathing room to focus more on our kind of debt platform, but there are a lot of moving pieces and we're kind of evaluating it as as it comes, but we don't expect interest rates to go down in any meaningful way over the next 12 to 24 months. And from the people that you've talked to here at the conference, have you learned about any new strategies or kind of anybody thinking about it differently or does it really feel like everybody's in the same bucket, in the same boat? Yeah. I mean, if you... If you took a sip of water every time you heard someone say negative leverage, right? You'd be, <laughs> you'd be very, very full, right? It's, it's, it's a lot of the same conversations. I think the winners right now are people that can buy all cash, people that can kind of wait and, and wait for the blood in the waters. You know, we're multifamily. This is a conference that talks about all asset classes. So the people in the office industry are obviously looking at things very differently. They're dealing with receivership and giving assets back to the bank and kind of working through the loans in a way that multifamily isn't there yet. 
hopeful that we won't be there. And I think to the extent that lenders see what's happening with with, with the office industry, they're going to be a little bit more flexible because they're not going to want to take back, you know, 50% of their real estate portfolio. So right. unfortunately for office, they're paving the way to make it a little bit easier for us. Yeah. And hopefully if a lot of multifamily, it's kind of been the rising tide that, you know, lifts all boats. So hopefully, you know, we can stay out of the negative leverage environment for a little bit longer until things progress. I realize we jumped, jumped right into the conversation. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your role in the firm that you work with and kind of help frame up, give some context to the conversation. Sure. So I'm at MJW Investments. We are a family-owned private equity real estate shop. We're based in Los Angeles. We own about 1.5 billion of assets under management. We are not fund-based, we're syndicated. So every deal we do kind of stands on its own and has its own investment group. We own multifamily primarily in kind of the Northwest and Los Angeles, and then student housing across the U.S. and select markets with a heavy concentration at BYU of all places. Interesting. So when we talk about student housing, it's one of those niche sectors, you know, relative to multifamily, been a lot of interest in niche real estate. Anything that you can share with us about the performance of student housing, since you're the first on the uh, podcast to reference student housing? Absolutely. So it's kind of funny because it used to be that there was this kind of 50 to 100 basis points spread between student housing and multifamily, multifamily being more expensive than student housing. But over the past six to eight months, I would say across the board, your multifamily rent growth rates are kind of been a little bit more stagnant and student housing has just skyrocketed. I mean, seeing 10 to 12% growth year over year between pre-leasing last year and pre-leasing this year is a little bit standard at this point. So the spread between multifamily and student housing has gotten a little bit more narrow. And so, you know, for us, as we're strategically thinking about, do we want to sell or hold certain assets? We actually think we'd make more money on a per pound basis for our student housing assets right now than our multifamily. Multifamily, the bid spread ask, as I'm sure you've heard everyone say, it's just really big, right? Where people are willing to sell and where buyers are willing to buy, it's just not there yet. On student housing, there's definitely been an adjustment, but it's it's a lot more narrow than it is on the multifamily side. And what do you think is driving that? I think people are willing to buy the dream. Whereas in multifamily, everything is sort of like expect stagnant growth. You know, we've had these huge growth rates of rent but it's going to plateau. Expenses are going up so much. There's just a little bit less NOI growth right now. Whereas on the student housing side, the NOI growth is 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 honestly very significant relative to the multifamily world. Hmm. Well, I'm sure we could spend a whole episode just talking <laughs> about that. So we won't do that. So at your organization as a CFO, what do you kind of what what do you oversee? Kind of like what lives within your remit. I'm basically Mark's right hand. Mark, Mark Weinstein is our, our founder and principal. He started the company 35 years ago and built it from the ground up and I'm his right hand. So I oversee investor relations, acquisitions, asset management, accounting, e- anything that needs to happen. Now with the caveat that we're also a, you know, a 15 person company. So it's, it's a big role, but it's all relative. And, and I would say the past six to eight months, the focus has really been on investor relations and on asset management because there's been such a focus on our investors really wanting that communication of what's going on, where are my distributions, what's happening with my assets, and you know, not not to plug Juniper, but we use Juniper. I mean, that that that's the platform that we use, and it it's streamlined all of our communication for all of our investors. Instead of writing twelve emails saying this is what's happening on this asset, it's like if I see five, six, seven investors asking the same thing, I'll just blast it out to that investor group, and it's it's kind of nice. So we've been spending a lot of our time 
working with investors, helping them understand kind of this is what's happening in real estate. This is what's happening with your asset, ripping the bandaid off, bad news fast kind of strategy. And we've noticed that generally it's been a breath of fresh air for them because what you generally hear investors say is, oh yeah, I'm in four other deals and they've done capital calls. So I understand that you might have to pause, you know, my distributions for a quarter or two about things stabilized, but I appreciate you're not doing a capital call. Right. And, and, and besides kind of this notion of, you know, communicate good news fast and bad news faster, what other changes have you seen in terms of like investor expectations or, you know, when it comes to reporting and communication? Is it really just around the cadence or have you seen other shifts in the market? They've wanted more information. And I, I'd say they're, they're, they're understanding in terms of the speed, but I would say over the past year, we've really beefed up our reporting. We kind of looked at our competitors and saw what are they presenting and looked at our investors and saying, what are we giving them? And for the most part, our investors are very happy with, you know, just getting the basic information that the distributions are coming and everything is going well. But we've layered in more information in terms of returns, in terms of historical stuff. Like we started using the tool where you can do the the, the quarterly distribution summary for your investments. So you don't have to like open up five quarterly reports. You could just see one section of this is how I'm doing. And our investors, again, they're, they're lawyers, doctors, mom and pop, you know, individuals. They're not institutions. So our, our reporting is kind of more basic than it would be if you were a fund, but more advanced than if you were just kind of doing a deal on your own. So we've beefed it up in terms of communication on our capital plans, on how our rents are doing, and really told them how the asset's performing much more so than we have in the past. So a lot of institutional investment managers today are actually starting to look at non-institutional capital sources. They're starting to look at retail investors, whether that's capital R or lowercase R, there's always a debate. What advice would you give to those groups? Not that you want to give away your investors, but I think there's a big knowledge gap. How are, quote, retail investors thinking about real estate today in this market where, you know, liquidity seems to be at a premium and real estate's inherently an illiquid asset class? Not to lead the witness, and you can feel free to turn that and say, you know, no, no, it's 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 totally fine. I would say it really has to do with trust in the operator. I don't think it's going to be anywhere near as easy for someone who traditionally invests through you know bigger institutions to come in and reach out to our investor group or any sort of similar investor group that really invest based on trust. They they invest because they know who we are and our reputation and they know Mark personally, maybe they're family friends, maybe they're YPO friends, whatever it might be, maybe they're on the ULI council with me. There there's that level of trust that I would say that you know our team spends this amazing amount of time writing these beautiful investment memos. I don't know how many people read them, right? It's it's all about the trust of who we are. So in going into the retail side, unless you're going through like a crowd street or a crowdfunding site where that's a different thing because you really are evaluating the deal for the deal. You don't know the operator as well. In going to the type of investors we have, it's, it's really a matter of growing organically and growing through trust. It's not an easy market to break into. Uh, it's taken 30 years to get the investor base that we have. And I would say now we're at the point where it organically grows. And candidly, we'd prefer not to go institutional because we like that base for ourselves. Right. We we like knowing that we know every investor. It's either a friend or a friend of a friend. We don't take random people and, and we work with our investors very closely, very different than an institutional world. So for anyone looking to do it, it is very gratifying to work with these people, but it's it's a very high touch kind of environment. And so- Ballpark, how many investors do you have, like unique investors? About 200 or 250. So 200, 250, you know, sounds like a lot, especially relative to an institutional fund that might have 10 or 12 or 15. How do you think about, you know, operational efficiency and kind of middle and back office? Like what role does technology play 
in enabling you to manage, you know, 200, 250 investor relationships? I mean, for, for us, candidly, it could be 200, it could be 2000. Like the way that we interact with our software with Juniper, it, it's kind of one and the same. If I'm sending an email to one investor, it's like I'm sending it to all of them. Right. So it's, it's all about kind of making sure I understand what kind of questions they have and addressing that up front in the quarterlies or whatever correspondence that we have. Because if I'm too vague, then I'm going to have a bunch of questions come back and I have 200 of them. But if we're upfront with the information, then it, it really doesn't really doesn't matter to us. You know, I would say if we only had 10, 15 investors, maybe we wouldn't need this platform. But anytime you get over 50 investors, it's, it's a lot easier to manage it with a software like that. Yeah. So switching gears away from kind of investor relations back to the market, you know, over the next six to 12 months, what keeps you up at night? Like, what are you most focused on? What are your priorities, your concerns, your areas of focus? Over the next six to 12 months, I've got a couple assets that I really want to see stabilized. And I would say that the biggest hurdle to seeing them stabilized is the talent pool in those markets. As the moratorium ended in Los Angeles and in Seattle and Washington, it's been a struggle to get tenants out that have not been paying. We've been very successful and, and are finally stabilized in our Los Angeles portfolio. Seattle is the next hurdle. And that's the one that, you know, we're very actively managing. I mean, I'm up there myself every month. Our team is up there every week because we really care about the operational success of that portfolio. That keeps me up at night, but I also see a path to success there. The other things that keep me up at night, honestly, are just making sure we're on top of all of our loans and all of the maturities. And the approach that we have taken with our lenders, which has seemed to be successful so far, is just upfront and honest and early on. So we had a loan that we knew was coming due three months prior to coming due. We reached out to the lender and said, you know, we're not going to be eligible for the extension, but we bought this asset right before COVID. So we're also not going to be, you know, capable of selling it or getting, you know, rid, rid of the loan in a timely manner. So we need a one-year extension, even though we don't meet the covenants and work through it with them. And we got that with them. So we've sort of taken that approach with a couple of our assets and, it keeps me up at night making sure that we're going to kind of get through all of it. But that that keeps me up. And honestly, anyone in student housing, what keeps them up at night every night is pre-leasing. Because in student housing, you basically have until June or July to fill up. And then the whole next year, like no one's coming in school in the middle of like right. November and saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I want to register now. Right. So so it's making sure we're pre-leasing. And it's like, are you charging too much? Are you charging too little? Are you giving away concessions? Did you be pulling back? So it's that push and pull that will keep me up at night until July. How's pre-leasing going? Student housing has been really strong. <laughs> so it's been going well. Good. Going back to an earlier comment that you made around one of the things that keeps you up is the availability of the workforce, I think is what you said. I think there's two issues that you touched on. One is how do you take the workforce that's in the units that were under a moratoria or moratorium and aren't paying rent and either get them to pay or have them move out now that you can? Is there another element around the people that work in the properties or on the properties or kind of how, what's that dynamic? I, I'm so not sure I understand. The staffing. The staffing. Staffing of, at the property. At the property. Okay, that's so, what I thought. So, so it's the moratorium has created a situation. You have a lot of tenants. So your occupancy at your properties could be 90, 95% right. seemingly stabilized, but your actual collections could be 10 to 15% less than that. Gotcha. And so that's, that's kind of part A. And then part B is just staffing at properties right now. When you're talking about people who for two years have had a very flexible dynamic of working because of the moratorium, property management was always an essential business. So for the most part, we were in person, but a lot of people kind of transitioned to doing jobs where they could be remote. A lot of people are realizing they can 
dictate their own hours if they're working for Uber. You know, there are, you know, basic restaurant chains that are paying $25 an hour. So right. you're you're up against a lot of headwinds that even if you're willing to pay more, you're still not able to retain talent. So we're spending a lot of time at MJW really working on kind of the KPIs and with our team, both corporate and on site of saying, you know, where do you see your value? How do you want to be rewarded? What is it that we can do for you if you reach these goals? Sometimes it's economic. Sometimes it's, I want an extra vacation day. Sometimes it's, we buy them a weekend trip somewhere where we know they'd never want to go. So it's really trying to engage the staff in a way that speaks to them because the demands of employees today are very different than they were pre-COVID. So as you look out, we talked about, you know, six to 12 months. Do you have any predictions for what's going to happen in 2024? 2024, I do think we'll see a lot more investment activity. Now, that's kind of a cop-out of a prediction because there's basically none right now in multifamily. So unless we think there's going to be none, I, I, I think lenders are going to realize, you know, which loans they're going to be pushing on and which ones they're not as maturities come up. And so you will see some kind of blend and extend from the lending community you will see some receiverships. And I think you will see a lot more of investors kind of, or, or owners willing to sell. Because when your loan comes due, you're either going to have to put in a cash and refi unless rates drastically go down, which I don't think anybody thinks that they are. And I personally don't. You're going to be in a situation where you're going to have to either put money into a deal. So you're going to have to do a capital call mm-hmm. or you're going to have to use money from your fund in order to, to you know refi the asset or you're going to sell it. And maybe you won't make as much as your underwriting initially thought it would, but you're still going to make money. And then in our case, you know, we recycle our funds in a 1031 exchange and we let our investors kind of continue with us to defer the the taxes. But I do think you're going to see a lot more activity. And does that imply you think we're going to see more distress before we see more opportunity? Because a lot of times, you know, we've talked about multifamily and industrial together. You know, they've been the darlings they are relatively insulated. We're still pushing rents, you know, cap rates are moving, but like, you know, nothing seems too out of whack, but it sounds like you think there might be some more distress, which will create opportunity to kind of reset the market. I do. I I think any deal that you bought in the past two years, the cap rates were just fundamentally so much lower than historical cap rates that there's going to be some sort of distress. You know, people were stretching with some very significant assumptions on where they could get things to be. People were all using the Chatham or Pensford, you know, curve for SOFA or LIBOR on kind of where they thought interest rates would go. And that thing's been completely blown out of the water, right? No one's going to argue that. So as soon as your cap is up, your payments are going to double or triple, you're going to be in distress. Now, whether or not you can sell to get out of it or sell just to make the lender whole at the very least, there'll definitely be a lot of that. But you're going to have, you're going to have distress, in my opinion, because the cap rates in multifamily and in industrial are, were, were just so compressed. Right. Let's end on a positive note. You know, what are you most excited about kind of going forward? You can pick your your, your time bound for this question. Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, the things that cause you stress are the things that are opportunities. I'm excited for the opportunities to buy. I'm excited for the opportunities to kind of turn things around and, and really look forward to 2024 being a year where we're back into acquisitions mode, where all our assets have been stabilized, all of our loans that needed to be kind of worked out and, and, and not work out in a negative sense, just sort of, you know, extended, worked on, worked yeah. on yes. Worked on. Our loans are kind of past us and we're going to be in an environment where, you know, hopefully it's another year for us of, you know, $200 million of acquisitions like it was last year. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, I hope so. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Natalie. <laughs> I know you. it's busy out there, so thanks for making the time. Thanks so much. Great seeing you. Me too. I'm Brandon Sudloff, Managing Director of Juniper Square, and you've been listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. We've been coming to you from the IMN CFO COO Conference in Dana Point, California in May of 2023. Over the course of the last few days, we've had the opportunity to learn from industry leaders and get their perspectives on what's happening in the market around interest rates, the recession, and how to build operational efficiency and resilience into the markets. A few of the takeaways that I've observed are that number one, real estate still remains fundamentally a people business and your relationships with investors and your lenders matter. Do the right thing. Second, we are a very optimistic bunch and by and large, most people believe that things will get better. It's only a matter of time. And lastly, we need to remember that real estate fulfills a critical need in society to be the place where people live, people work, and people play. So while the macro environment remains uncertain and nobody can control what the Fed is going to do, the outlook for commercial real estate remains bright. And for those firms who are focused on the fundamentals of asset management, driving operational efficiency, focusing on their core competencies, they will survive, they will thrive, and together the industry will emerge stronger than ever before. Thank you for joining me and listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you want to follow along, you can follow me on LinkedIn under LinkedIn forward slash B Sedloff or on Twitter at B Sedloff. 